Esther chapter 3. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the son of Hamadatha the Agagite, and advanced him, and set his seat above all the princes who were with him. All the king's servants who were in the king's gate bowed down, and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai didn't bow down, or pay him homage. Then the king's servants who were in the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you disobey the king's commandment? Now it came to pass when they spoke daily to him, and he didn't listen to them, that they told Haman to see whether Mordecai's reason would stand, for he had told them he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai didn't bow down or pay him homage, Haman was full of wrath. But he scorned the thought of laying hands on Mordecai alone, for they had made known to him Mordecai's people. Therefore Haman sought to destroy all the Jews who were there throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus, even Mordecai's people. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast Pur, that is, the lot, before Haman from day to day and from month to month, and chose the twelfth month, which is the month Adar. Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom, and their laws are different from other peoples. They don't keep the king's laws, therefore it is not for the king... <coughs> Sorry, excuse me. Read that verse again. There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom, and their laws are different from other peoples. They don't keep the king's laws. Therefore, it is not for the king's prophet to allow them to remain. If it pleases the king, let it be written that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who are in charge of the king's business to bring it into the king's treasuries. The king took his ring from the hand and gave it to Haman the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the Jew's enemy. The king said to Haman, The silver is given to you, the people also, to do with them as it seems good to you. Then the king's scribes were called in on the first month, on the thirteenth day of the month, and all that Haman commanded was written to the king's local governors, and to the governors who were over every province, and to the princes of every people, to every province according to its writing, and to every people in their language. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus, and it was sealed with the king's ring. Letters were sent by couriers into all the king's provinces to destroy, to kill, and to cause to perish all Jews, both young and old, little children and women, in one day, even the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, which is the month Adar, and to plunder their possessions. A copy of the letter that the decree should be given out in every province was published to all the peoples that they should be ready against that day. The couriers went out in haste by the king's commandment, and the decree was given out in the citadel of Susa, the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was perplexed. Strange stuff, this. <laughs> and uh, one of the commentators said that the, the story of Esther is a gripping yarn, and it really is. The way the plot flows through, it's an amazing, and it's a true story, which makes it all the more interesting. So in this chapter, you know, in, in, in the way liter literature is described, we meet the uh, antagonist. <laughs> so, you know, the chief bad character, and that's Haman, the Agagite. Now, um, 
he, he, you know, in this chapter, he basically gets promoted and he wants people to bow down to him wherever he goes, but, but Mordecai won't bow down. So he gets wild. He wants to kill not just Mordecai, but all Jewish people because he just can't stand them, stand them. So he wants to basically bring about genocide. And um, so, you know, that's pretty bad. And um, now, did you notice that Haman was an Agagite? Uh, you probably didn't pay much attention to that, but Agag was the king of the Amalekites way back in the first book of Samuel. In the first book of Samuel, the king of Israel, the first king was called Saul, and Saul was told by the Lord, he was actually given a test to see if he would follow the Lord or do what he wanted, and the Lord told him to completely destroy the Amalekites, men and women, children, sheep, animals, that he was supposed to completely destroy them. Now, I know that that's not politically correct today, and we talked about why that would be um, the Lord's instruction way back in those videos. Go and watch them. But for the point of this video is that the king of the Amalekites was Agag. Now here in this story, we've got an Agagite. <laughs> we've got a descendant of Agag right here. And uh, way back in 1 Samuel, Saul's problem was that he didn't obey the Lord. He didn't destroy Agag, the king of the Amalekites. Samuel ended up doing that. But he didn't destroy all the Amalekites. He let heaps of them live. He did not obey the Lord and didn't do the job properly. As a result, a thousand years later, we've got a descendant of Agag called Haman, right here in the book of Esther. <laughs> now, so if, if Saul had actually obeyed the Lord and done what the Lord said properly, you know, accurately, we wouldn't have the book of Esther. So when the Lord said that to Saul, aside from all the reasons we, which I gave, you know, I, because when I, we were going through the chapters of 1 Samuel, I was trying to explain why this non-politically correct thing was correct in its time and place, but we never talked about the book of Esther back then. Now, from the perspective of Esther, we know that the Lord was thinking into the future. So when the Lord commands people to do things, sometimes it doesn't make sense. You'd say, why would the Lord command a certain thing to happen? And, um, you know, you think in your life, for example, I'm not saying the Lord doesn't command these types of things anymore. This this, the command to destroy the Amalekites was a specific command at one time in history. That's not how the Lord operates now. And don't ever get any ideas like this in your head. <laughs> the Lord Jesus came and taught us to love our enemies. And we operate now by turning the other cheek. There's different things at play. And um, But you can see how the Lord knew. The Lord knows every implication of every decision and how it's all going to play out. And as a result, when he asks us to do things, he knows what the result will be of it, even in a thousand years' time. And so, you know, like in those time-traveling movies, um, you know, they go back in time and, uh, you know, they make a little change and they come back to where they're living and everything's different. <laughs> well, you know, you can do that in time-traveling movies. You can do whatever you want when you're making up a movie. But in, re in reality, the Lord knows what every little decision is going to require imply in the future. So if the Lord ever leads you, the Lord won't lead you to do anything that's wrong, but he might lead you to do something that doesn't make sense to you. But the Lord knows the effect of it, even a thousand years in the future, which is something we learn right here in Esther chapter three. 
It's amazing. <laughs> and if you think about it, elsewhere in the Bible, this is in the letters of Peter, it says, to the Lord, a thousand years is like a day. And you know, you and I, like I know, I go home at night and I, I think sometimes about tomorrow. You know, what's going to happen tomorrow? You know, I've got that appointment in the morning and I've got to make sure I'm ready for this. So I'm thinking about tomorrow, but for the Lord, it's no different thinking about a thousand years, just like you or I would think about tomorrow. <laughs> and that's quite a remarkable thought. So in this chapter, they cast the poor, P-U-R, and um, that's like a dice. It's kind of like, and they've even discovered these in archaeology in the city of Susa. So there's been a lot of archaeological work done in Susa, where this story is set. And of course, most of what they find is not biblical. It's just, you know, Persian culture and Persian history, but they have found the dice, the pur, which are probably, um, were used for lots of things, but it's just, it's just an interesting connection because they're mentioned here in this chapter. So they cast the pur, and these dice are used to determine the day that Haman wants to attack the Jews. And the day that they, um, that they come up with is the 13th day of Adar, and, uh, you know, which is at the end of the Jewish year, the 12th month. So then he goes off to King Ahasuerus to convince him that there's these really bad people in your kingdom and uh, they're so bad, we've got to get rid of them. They, they don't follow your rules. And I'll even put 10,000 talents of silver into your treasury. He's even willing to pay the king out of his own wealth and the amount that he's wanting to put in is a lot. And the king... Um, doesn't seem to need the money. The king just says, the silver is yours, but here's my ring, go and do it. And so the notice goes out to, to the entire 127 provinces. The notice is published on the, the 13th day of Nisan, which is the first month of the year. So in the first month of the year, on the 13th day of the first month, the notice goes out that on the 13th day of the 12th month, there's gonna be a genocide. So that's an, an exact 11 months time gap. Can you imagine being Jewish, living in the land, knowing, goodness me, I've got, in 11 months, we're doomed. You know, and you'd have some tough decisions to make, like leaving the Persian Empire, for example. And it's not like you couldn't just go, it's, it's not like you could say to yourself, well, let's just go back to Jerusalem, because guess what? Jerusalem's also a part of the Persian Empire. So even the Jews that were living in Jerusalem the same thing apply to them there. However, if you know much about your Bible and the Feast of Israel, you will know that the Feast of Passover always fell on the 14th day of the first month, the 14th of Nisan. But the decree that went out to the whole empire was on the 13th day of the first month. So they were given notice one day before Passover that they were all going to be destroyed. The Passover is the celebration of how the Lord saved them all from the Egyptians. So that, when I was looking through this and preparing, I thought, goodness me. And I realized that, that maybe all the Jews that lived far enough away, they wouldn't have found out that year for Passover. But all the Jews that lived right there in that city of Susa, they would have known that Passover. That in nine, 11 months from now, we're going to be destroyed. It would have been a very strange Passover. One of the commentators, Brenneman, said that it was a very ironic time to find out about your destruction, you know, a day before you're supposed to be celebrating the fact that God saved you from destruction. So <laughs> these are all interesting things that we find in here in chapter, chapter 3. 
And um, the, the last thing I want to mention is that is that this chapter happens in the 12th year of um, Ahasuerus. So the first chapter happened in the third year of Ahasuerus, where he loses his queen, goes off to war for four years. The second chapter happens in the seventh year of King Ahasuerus, when Esther becomes queen. We're now in chapter three, which happens in the 12th year. So you don't really get the impression that the time is so dragged out, but we, it's now been nine years since he lost his queen and it's been five years since Esther became queen. So Esther, you know, she becomes queen and life probably becomes pretty much, it's, it's whatever routine you have as the queen of the most important person in the world, but she's not allowed to go out of the palace as far as we know because she has to send messengers out to find things out. So life would have been, I would have guessed, apart from when the king wanted to see you, pretty mundane. And um, we, you know, you'd say to yourself, well, why would the Lord put her into this place five whole years before this terrible incident? And we're going to find out in the chapters ahead that she needs to be there so that she can have a say and influence this terrible incident. That's the story. That's why the book's named after her. But why did the Lord put her there five years before? Well, the Lord's timing is perfect, <laughs> and I don't know why. Maybe she needed to get used to how the palace worked. Maybe she had things to learn. Maybe um, the king had to grow and become fond of her. I don't know. There could have been any number of reasons why, but I know that the Lord's timing is perfect. So the Lord puts her into this position five years before she's needed for a reason. And there's going to be, and in those five years, life's just a routine. And in your life, there's some positions that you're in. There are places you're in. There's a family you've been put into, but there may be a job you're in or a place, and the Lord has put you there. But you might be thinking there's no purpose in it. That's not necessarily true, <laughs> because the Lord may have put you there for just the right time, which is what we're going to find out soon. Lord, I want to thank you for Esther chapter 3. And I thank you, Lord, for this most remarkable woman. And uh, I, I know, Lord, that, that people are remarkable when your spirit is in them and you help them. And help us, Lord, to have your spirit in us and to do what you call us to do, to obey. Let your grace be at work in our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.